the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. With rare exception, every week of your life, this last week was no different, and starting tomorrow will again be no different, is all the same. Week after week after week, it's the same thing. Tomorrow morning, you will wake up early. You will kiss your wife or your husband goodbye and get in the car or get on the bus and go to work. You clock in, you sit down, you type for eight hours and then you clock out, you go home, you fight traffic, kiss the wife, say hi to the kids, eat dinner, go to bed, rinse and repeat. Friday night, maybe you're on Google. What's open tomorrow? Where can we take the kids? Maybe that's a little different. You take the kids to a museum or to a park, then you go home. Ah, I got another day. Oh, I got to go to church. You come to church, you get ready, you get stressed because the kids aren't ready. You go to church. Where's my Bible? Find your Bible, get some coffee, talk to a few people, sit down, go through a sermon, rinse and repeat, and it starts over again. And then pretty soon it's on Monday morning, I do this and that, and it's all robotic. It's all the same. It's boring. It's mundane. What are you doing for What are you waiting for? Another day of the exact same thing? Another Sunday of another boring sermon? Another stale coffee? Another old pastry? Why do we do it week after week after week? It's boring. And you say, rat race. Isn't that what they call it? I've seen rats thrown in a, in a little puzzle in a, in a lab. That's exactly it. We're just fighting. We're just doing it for seemingly no reason until you understand grace. That changes everything. That changes just waking up in the morning to rush to get to work to thank God for another day. That changes from, ah, I got to deal with the kids again, no free weekends for the next 15 years to, I don't deserve these kids. I don't deserve this house that I have to clean because they throw their toys everywhere. And all of this We know as believers in God's grace that there is no end for us. In fact, the future, what we call the end times, even is even greater and more glorious. And so we're even sparked with even greater understanding of grace to live for God, to live because of God and live for a day and where he will, almighty king, come again and usher us into glory where we will forever be sin-free. All of it is grace. It changes everything. It has changed your life. It has changed your perspective on life. It has changed your eternity. It was changed where you live forever and ever and evermore. And this morning as we continue studying 1 Corinthians and we look at the concept of grace, these are the exact principles we will see. That grace, as Paul tells us or tells the Corinthians, is every day. And it's in everything. And it will continue on as we live for eternity in glory. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. And we'll continue our study on the blessings of God, what that means and what grace means and how those two are interconnected in many ways the same thing. And how this changes 
the Christian's perspective, the moment they are saved from the daily rat race, the humdrum, boring repetitiveness of life to an exciting adventure after adventure after adventure. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are in the middle of looking at eight realities of the grace bestowed upon believers. And last week, we looked at the first four, which I want to review for you briefly. In verse four, we saw the source of blessing who or which is God. He says again, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. And we are reminded here of the foundation for thanksgiving and all of Christian living, which is God's grace. God's grace, firstly and most importantly, in salvation, in giving you faith, then His continuing grace through the concrete expressions of blessing in our lives and giftedness. You understand that no one has and no one will ever be saved through their faith. You are saved by grace through faith. Because if it is your faith, you're mustering up the energy to believe, then that just works righteousness. You are saved by your own works. Yes, faith, but it is a gift. You are saved by grace through faith. It is because God is doing this in the Corinthians, this grace, that Paul is constantly thanking God concerning them. Despite their moral failures, which include an unloving and frankly downright hurtful behavior toward the Apostle Paul. In other words, through the letter of 1 Corinthians, though it is to correct the Corinthians believers, Paul's focus is first and foremost on what God is doing. And that's why, as we saw last week, he can thank God for them, be thankful for them, despite the fact that they are in no way acting like friends, let alone fellow believers at this point. Because he's not saying, I thank you for you and your works. He's thanking God for what he has done in them, not what the Corinthians are doing. And from this, we see why Paul even bothers in the first place, why he even cares. If someone is treating you that badly, just write them off, forget about them, cut them out of your life. You don't need that stress that temptation to sin, get out, get them out of there. But Paul cares because it is God working in them. And we can also learn the proper attitude in how we are to view other believers even when they mistreat us, to focus on God's work in them. Secondly, we, secondly, we saw the depth of blessing in the beginning of verse 5. That in everything you were enriched in Him. And Paul says, we have been made exceedingly rich, exceedingly wealthy, in that God has blessed us in all things spiritual. 
As far as spiritual things are concerned, we are wealthy. And this is far more important than physical blessing. And we need to remember the significance of this and the priority of this. I spoke last week, I believe, in the beginning, in the introduction of my sermon about how people misuse the word blessing. And so often uh, it's connected in our world, in our society, to having a lot of money or getting a better job or a pay raise. Right? We, we're even tempted to say that as well as if a Christian who makes six figures is more blessed than a Christian who makes five figures or four figures. That's not the case. I understand we say that because we want to attribute attribute our finances to God, but we need to be careful that we don't just view blessing as material things. And this is a good reminder here. He says, you are wealthy spiritually. We need to stop focusing or prioritizing physical wealth, material wealth. You know, when we look at our lives, we often struggle with a lack of gratitude, a hesitation to totally surrender to Christ. All temptation, really, stems from a pursuit of worldly things while overlooking the fact that we are already spiritually fulfilled. Because we overlook what we already have and we strive for what we want, what we don't have. Because the grass is always greener, right? So remember the depth of blessing. You are fully blessed spiritually. Thirdly, we saw the mission of blessing, and he specifies as we go on in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, in all speech and knowledge, in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. And I pointed out last week that we have been blessed in all things spiritual, yet Paul makes mention of two specific grace gifts, speech and knowledge. This speaks to the privilege as well as the priority we have of proclaiming the truth of God, whether through evangelizing the lost or building up believers in the church. Both speech and knowledge refer to the Scriptures in the sense that we have been given the ability to speak for God and the knowledge to do so as an effective representative of God. It doesn't mean that if you haven't been to seminary or you can't answer every theological question that a Christian or non-Christian will throw at you means that you haven't been given this gift. You have. We all have been given enough to represent God. In fact, we're looking at 1 Corinthians. It is, after all, in his second letter to the Corinthians that Paul refers to believers as ambassadors of Christ. All believers are representatives of a king, a leader. An ambassador we are, representatives in this case of a king while living in a foreign land. You're familiar with the concept of an ambassador. For us, that king being Jesus, the foreign land for us being earth. We represent another kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God, while we are temporarily sent by that king to represent him here on earth. And so naturally, it makes sense, as you would expect of a political, uh, worldly ambassador, that they are given the ability, trained, and given the resources to effectively represent the United States of America or the United Kingdom or Canada or wherever they are sent from as an ambassador. So too, this is what this is speaking of. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, 
we have been given the resources we need, which is the ability to speak for and the understand the understanding of Scripture from God for God. And finally, last week we saw, fourthly, the confirmation of blessing. In verse 6, he says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. And this simply means that for the Corinthians, as well as for all believers, it was upon the acceptance of the gospel at the moment they were saved and justified is when the grace of God became operative in salvation, as well as all the blessings pouring forth specifically in regards to their mission on earth, our mission on earth. And so uh, this week we begin with number five, the fifth reality of the grace bestowed upon believers, the anticipation of blessing. The anticipation of blessing. Our blessing brings with it an anticipation of what? Let's look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As it does in English today, the word or that phrase, so that, explains what just came before it. So what we're about to look at explains the present benefits of our believing. Why have we been given these privileges and these gifts? See, Paul builds on believers being enriched in God's grace here. The gift of grace refers to the gifts used to minister to others. We just talked about that. And it is all we need to live a faithful and fruitful life for God on this planet. And again, we're reminded of the dangers of living a life thinking that we are lacking or wanting because we focus on the material rather than the spiritual. He says you are not lacking in any gift. And yet, if you ask the average Christian in America, they say, oh, I'm lacking. I'm lacking finances. I'm lacking a family. I'm lacking a spouse. I'm lacking kids. I'm lacking kids that obey. I'm lacking enough in my 401k, whatever it is, right? We all think we're lacking. We're lacking because your phone's slow. You have the iPhone 9 instead of the 53 or whatever's out now, right? <laughs> We're all lacking something. And it is true, at least uh, technologically speaking, financially speaking, there's always more we can have. But what Paul is reminding us is that spiritually speaking, we are not lacking. God has given us, at least given us the resources and the ability and His Spirit to do what we need to do. We don't always do it. We still sin. We still fail. We are lacking understanding. But it's helpful that Paul here uses the word gift because it focuses our attention on the free and generous giving of the giver. You can't see it, but that word giver in my notes is a capital G. The giver. God. It is all of grace. And when you combine God's sovereign ability with His grace and love toward us, then you understand why we're not lacking in any spiritual gift. He loves us. He has called us. He wants us to have the privilege and the joy of representing Him. He doesn't send us out and like a bad boss or a bad manager, go, go take care of this client. 
and doesn't prepare you at all. You don't even know what's wrong. What's the problem? What problem does a client have? What's the address? Who do I talk to when I get there? You don't know anything. But that's now how God treats us. He doesn't just send us on earth and say, go do something for me, and we have no idea what that means. He tells us. He gives us the ability to speak. And for the rare few that can't speak, to sign, to write, whatever it is, to represent Him. And the Bible is so clear. Yes, we have questions. There's passages we don't understand. But a grade schooler could read the Bible and get saved and understand what God wants him to do. And again, this is a reference to what we should be the, what should be the primary desire of our lives, which is to serve God and to serve others. And this highlights what I believe is one of the biggest issues with material pursuits versus acknowledging your existing spiritual wealth and what you plan to do with that. You see, the former, just pursuing being rich on earth, focuses on self and focuses on what you want. The latter focuses on others and what God wants. And that's it. That's very simple. When we look at the Scriptures, it's very clear that we are to take care of ourselves. We are to enjoy this life in Him. But it's all about focusing on Him and others. I used, to, I used to say, you know, you read the Bible, you read the New Testament, Christian, and you realize it is not about you. It's not about you. And I preached that in a sermon in a seminary class, and the professor corrected me very graciously. It wasn't a main point in his critique. He said, eh, the Bible is kind of about you. And it is true. Because salvation is all about you. But how you live is all about not you. How we're called to live is all about something other than you. In fact, that's why the definition of love, so based, so simple, right? Love. The very definition of love in the Bible is all about others, 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 others. And yet we're growing up thinking love is all about me, 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 me. Because that's what they say. That's what Hollywood says. That's what Hallmark says. Why? Because if you were to define love on your own, just in your own degenerate, sinful heart, you would say, it's me. It's flowers for me. It's cards for me. It's giving me attention. It's me, me, me. Right? And yet, we know from the Scriptures, the very definition of love, the very definer of love, God, very God, it's all about others, others, others. Name one point in the Gospels all the way up through the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension that anything in Jesus' example for us was about me, 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 me. I mean, maybe feeding thousands of people, maybe healing people. Okay, that's selfless. But surely if there was even one fraction of an ounce of selfishness in Christ's life, it is the cross he would avoid, right? This other stuff, fine. You want me to serve, you want me to give, you want me to wash people's feet, fine, but uh, mm, I can't do that. But it clearly shows in his perfect example for us a complete selflessness and a definition of love and grace. 
I was walking home this week, uh, caught up with a, one of my neighbors who's not a Christian, and uh, we're sharing about uh, Emily, a tragedy that happened in my family and I's life recently, and he had no idea. You know, he we hadn't seen him in a while. He's like, oh, when's the baby due? And so I shared with him, and we talked a little bit about religion and, uh, you know, wanting to share the gospel with him. And and we got into talking about his philosophy on life. He said he was kind of playing on the Me Too movement. He said, you know, the biggest problem around here is me first. Me first. We're so consumed with self to the detriment of society and the plan and purposes of God in our lives. And don't even mention outside of the church. Right, the, the the growing level of selfishness and thinking about yourself first and what you think you deserve and self entitlement. This is destroying our com- country. We want to blame the Republicans. We want to blame the Democrats. We want to blame coronavirus or whatever, because we're afraid to look in the mirror and say, "This is me. This is me." You know, you look at the average American. And you live, listen to their speech and you listen to the, the depravity that they pursue and the, the, the things that they do to other people and, and the self-entitlement. You really think given the reach and the power and the money of Donald Trump, they wouldn't do the same things that we don't like reading about in the paper? You, you really think people, the average unbeliever in the world, given no repercussions because he's so rich and powerful that he wouldn't just randomly grab actresses that are fawning to get his autograph or a picture? Well, I don't think they would do that. Yeah, but, but they cheat on their spouses and have affairs? Come on. It's the depravity of man. It's a, it's a selfishness. Do what feels good. Do what you want. Sacrifice your kids. Sacrifice time with your kids. Sacrifice your kids' health because, hey, you know, you justify it. They really will be happier in a bigger house, right? We make these excuses when it's really all about us. It's me first. We need to flip that around as believers. Me last. There's a reason that what the Old Testament Jews were to give to God were called first fruits. Not second batch, not second harvest, definitely not last, not leftovers after what you and your family can't eat or what nobody wants to buy at the market, first fruits. To give to God first and then use what's left over for self, whether it's eating it or selling it. And we're not just talking about first chronologically. The Old Testament is clear. This concept of first fruits was to give God that which came first and also was best. And you can imagine for months, months of planning and waking up before the sun comes up, going in to have dinner after the sun goes down, bleeding from his hands, a farmer toiling for months and months, excited when that flower buds and that crop first comes out to say, finally, Something has grown. Let's eat. But 
He doesn't run home with the spoils for his family. He runs to the temple to give God his first fruits. And the principle behind this, as the Proverbs tell us, is first fruits is because God created everything and thus everything belongs to God. But when we buy into or live out the me first mentality, we give all to ourselves first and then what's left over, we give God and others. That's why some Christians don't give at all. Because they've managed to use up everything for themselves. Which is not very difficult, you understand. Perhaps it's a lack of faith that you will have anything left if you give your first and best to God. But again, that was one of the points of the first fruits in the Old Testament. To trust the Lord in worshiping and honoring Him with your sacrifice of first fruits to trust the Lord that He will bring more crop and more harvest for you to use. And I think when we struggle with this, the irony of not living this way is when you jump forward to the New Testament in James chapter 1 and verse 18, you know what he says are a kind of first fruits to God? We are. Christians are called the first fruits. We are the first sign or foretaste of what is to come in the new creation. And should we not then, as the very first fruits of God, live so that we give to God our first fruits? It goes back to living out our position as we talked about a couple weeks ago. But back to our passage. Though in this life believers are not lacking in any spiritual gift, Paul is not saying that the Corinthians or us have arrived. In fact, it is in the midst of this grace that we are, and I quote, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's introducing the proper eschatological or end times perspective known as already, not yet. I know it sounds silly. That's actually the the theological term. Already, not yet. In other words, our salvation is secure and forever. But in our timeline, and the timeline of God, you understand He lives outside of time, but in the space-time continuum, our salvation has begun. It is secured. We are justified. We are growing. We are being sanctified. But we are still in process and in the middle of a timeline that will not conclude until the end times, until glory. And what we are eagerly waiting for is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's in this context that we are to use our gifts in the context of being in that process in the already but not yet, because glory is coming. In anticipation of the fulfillment of God's big picture plan, we are to be faithful and use His grace to represent Him, to serve Him. He says we are awaiting eagerly. Those two words are one word in the Greek. It's translated as wait, simply wait in the ESV and King James. And this Greek word speaks of an eager anticipation. 
It's to wait with a degree of earnestness and an intensity of expectation. But there's an another, there's another important nuance to this Greek word. It's not just about eagerly anticipating and then you just kind of sit idly by. When's he coming? Hurry up on your phone waiting for the bus. No. The word indicates eager anticipation with productive activity. That's what exactly what Paul is saying here. We eagerly wait, but we're active in that waiting. So remember, God has a plan, and you are in the middle of that plan. And what that means in the context of this passage is that we are not just to stand on the foundation of the grace of God as those who are enriched with speech and knowledge. Rather, we are to stand on our tiptoes like a child looking out the window, eagerly anticipating the return of the King. When God will establish us as blameless on the day of the Lord. And that leads us to our sixth reality of the grace bestowed upon believers, the fulfillment of blessing. Look at verse 8. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will confirm us to the end, literally sustain us, establish us. This is a promise that these blessings will be ours until the day when sin is no longer within us. And this is accomplished by keeping us true in the faith, meaning ultimately that you cannot lose your salvation. But he also keeps us to the end through our daily forgiveness of sins. And it's fitting that Paul's talking about confirming us up until the time that no forgiveness is necessary because in those days, at that, that, at that time, in that state, there will no longer be any sin. And though we do sin now, until the day we die or we are raptured, in the future day, Jesus will still, in spite of our sin, present us to the Father as blameless, guiltless in the ESV. It means irreproachable, unimpeachable. No charge can be laid against us. It's not because we haven't done anything wrong. It's because Christ has paid it all. Keep in mind that this is the day in which the entirety of our lives and service will be reviewed and assessed by God the Father. But no fault will be found, not because no fault was committed, but because in His grace, God paid it all. We will be judged, as Paul says, blameless because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And even in the Corinthians, with all their failures and all their shortcomings, Paul has confidence that they will make it to the end and at that time be found guiltless. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. This is a passage that married Christian men know well. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. It's not the husband's part that I want you to focus on, but Christ. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church 
and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And here it is, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. No spot or wrinkle. You think, I think about my own sin. He's being being kind here. No spot or wrinkle. I have a giant glaring stain. I have I have permanent creases that cannot be ironed out. No spot or wrinkle. Or any such thing. But presented holy and blameless. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because we have been called. Because we have been saved. Because we have been justified. Because we have been set apart. It's not that God doesn't know about our sin. We're even told that based on our faithfulness and our our heart attitude, there will be differences in reward for the Christian. No penalty, no damnation, but differences in reward. And so he sees that. He gauges that. He understands that. But we will be guiltless, irreproachable. Why? Again, not because he doesn't see the sins we have committed both pre- and post-conversion, but because the crimes have been paid for. Right? You can't just, you know, someone does his time, 20 years in prison, he's let free, the judge says you're free, and they say, nah, I just don't feel comfortable with that, I know what you did, pull him back in. No, it's done, it's paid for. It's not that we don't know what crimes he committed, it's a matter of public record. It just he it's paid for. And it's the same thing with Christ. It's paid for. He sees the sin. It's just paid for. And that's why we are presented as holy and blameless. So again, we have the already, not yet. Okay? We still need daily to ask God for his forgiveness for the sins. It's already, not yet. Just justification by faith in this life is anticipation of the future verdict that will be pronounced on the day of the Lord. And the already not yet principle can be allegorized like this. Before Christ, we're outside in a freezing tundra. Our limbs, our fingers, our digits were at risk of frostbite, being cut off, broken off out there freezing to death in our sin. In God's grace and salvation and the the subsequent continuing blessings in this life that we're talking about, but firstly, in salvation, God takes us out of that cold and brings us into a warm room. And in that warm room, that room of grace, that room of salvation, we start warming up And slowly, our limbs are defrosting. We no longer feel the cold. But the cold still exists. We are merely in a room placed in the midst of that freezing world. The forces of heat and cold are still active. And even now in that room, even now in your place, in your spiritual walk, 
there are still some parts of your body that have yet to thaw out. But the forces of heat in that room are decisive in that they will never change. They are not only the forces at work, excuse me, they are not the only forces at work. So for us, the decisive event has occurred. You have been brought into that warm room. You will never be kicked out. But the forces of cold still exist in this world. But the process has been set in motion, and the fact that you have been brought into that warm room means that you are on your way to completion in a day where there will be no warm room because the entire world is warm and the forces of cold no longer exist. Already, not yet. We live in God's grace. We're being sanctified. But yet, as believers, we still sin. And there may be major limbs of our body that have not thought out yet. We are still struggling with addictions and sins we had before God saved us. We still struggle with those to some degree. And yet we know a day is coming and where we will not be in this warm room and where cold air surrounds us, but we will be in glory forever. Already, but not yet. We long for that day. We desire that day. But that's not enough. It's not enough to understand what's coming to the degree that our minds can comprehend it. It's not enough to just study the Scriptures, listen to my sermon. It's not enough even just to anticipate and hope for it. We must also live in light of that day. Not just live. Not just survive. Not just exist. But live, survive, and exist in light of that day Number seven, the reliability of blessing. The reliability of blessing. The beginning of verse nine, God is faithful. This makes everything secure. God is faithful. I don't know if they still do this, but do you remember uh, at the end of a TV show, I remember growing up as a little kid watching cartoons or, or whatever child programming, At the end of the show, they'd mention a sponsor, right? The company that paid for advertising to make the show possible, that maybe just paid for that little, their name to be mentioned, right? Today's program brought to you by Starkist Tuna, the tuna, blah, 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 right? Everything that we have looked at, the grace in salvation, the grace in your sanctification, and the grace in future eternity with Christ, sin-free, everything we've looked at regarding grace and blessing, all of it is brought to you by God's faithfulness. Everything hinges on God and His character. None of this would be encouraging. None of this would bring hope. None of this would bring confidence if God's faithfulness was not clearly, clearly taught in Scripture. Isn't this the the issue with so many false religions and, and, and Christian cults 
that are based on the works of man? As a true Christian, I ask you, are you going to heaven? Amen. Yes. Hallelujah. See you there. You stand out outside all those other churches. Are you going to heaven? I hope so. If I'm good enough, we'll see. We'll see. When are you going to see? When it's too late to make any difference. Do you know how scary that is to live that way? We'll see. At the day when he tells me if I'm in heaven or hell. And there's no second chances. But then there's some churches that come up, well, oh, let's give them a second chance, right? Their relatives pray enough and give enough. There's like a holding place and then they can get... It's crazy. But why? Because we have no confidence in our own morality. We have no hope in, in our own excellence. And so we don't know. I hope so. But God is faithful. We know that. And so we know this is true. We know we are saved. And for those of us who struggle with doubting our salvation, it's not because you doubt if God can do it. You doubt your, your own lack of fruit or if you ever made that profession of faith. Even in that, you understand that God is faithful. And that word faithful means trustworthy, reliable, dependable, consistent. In His faithfulness, God cannot lie, nor can He rescind or go back on the promises He has made. And He has promised, once saved, always saved. He has promised, Jesus died for your sins. He has promised, once you are saved, you will be blessed and blessed and given grace and be able to represent Him. So, because He is faithful, grace it is. Gifts there will be. Blameless judgment, as good as done. Because God is faithful. We've been looking at a little book in the men's group called Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. And he writes this on the uh, chapter on faithfulness. Unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with exceedingly rare exceptions, no longer his bond. In the social world, marital infidelity abounds on every hand, the sacred bonds of wedlock being broken with as little disregard or with as little regard as the discarding of an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth make no scruple to attack and deny it. Nor can reader or writer, he's talking about people reading his book and himself, the writer, nor can reader or writer co- claim complete immunity from this unfaithful, excuse me, nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. In how many ways have we been unfaithful to Christ and to the light and privilege which God has entrusted to us? So how refreshing, how unspeakably blessed to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things, faithful at all times. God is faithful. And so we know these things are true. And the faithfulness of God leads us, eighthly and finally, 
to fellowship with Christ, the eighth reality of the grace bestowed upon believers is the partnership of blessing. The partnership of blessing. And stick with me. I'll explain why I say partnership and not just fellowship. The end of verse 9. Through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of God's faithfulness, He has saved us into communal, communal participation with Christ. The word called speaks of an effective call. Not ju- it's not just an invitation, right? We kind of use that sometimes as an invitation. I called all the sheep in for dinner and only 20 of them came. I don't know why I just thought of that analogy. Very strange. But you get it. We just call. People don't answer the call. They don't respond to the call. That's not what it's talking about. It's an effective call. It's not just an invitation. And this particular calling was through the gospel. Okay? And so when Paul says, you were called into this, he's talking to believers that he called you and a response by God's grace was made. He's not just like, I called and no one responded. Okay? This is an effectual call. And what we were effectually called into was fellowship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship means partnership, oneness. It is the blending of two wills into one. And this took place at our conversion. All believers are in fellowship with Christ. Not just the experience of being together as Christians, but the status of being in Christ. Being shareholders in a sonship that is derived from the sonship of Christ. And this fellowship is not just a position, it's not just a title, but it is a relationship. So as a Christian, you are not merely in Christ, that is, freed from the guilt of sin, but also in fellowship with Christ and thus commune with Him through the Holy Spirit. And this communion includes the consummation of our salvation in the last days. In other words, we are secured to that future glory, to that eternity with Him through the fellowship or being one with Christ. We are locked in. Right? Try to think of the, the biggest, safest lock you can think of. The most secure safe. There's nothing more powerful than being locked in by the Holy Spirit, God Himself. And so, when we live through this life, you've heard the phrase, attitude is everything. And attitude is not about changing your circumstances, right? You know this. It's about your perspective on those circumstances. So is it just a job or is it God's grace? Is it just a disobedient daughter or is it God's grace? Is it another bland dinner or is it God's grace? Is it another paycheck in the bank or is it God's grace? And by definition, God's grace means you don't deserve it. Everything we do will change if we remember the reality of the grace bestowed upon believers. The source of blessing, God. The depth of blessing in 
all spiritual things. We are rich. The mission of blessing that we are here to proclaim and represent the truth of God. The confirmation of blessing, salvation. The anticipation of of blessing, the future day. The fulfillment of blessing, we will be there one day. The reliability of blessing, all of this we know is true because God is faithful and the partnership of blessing. We are not just some puppet. We are not just some little toy, some project for Christ. We are one with Him. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the richness of Your grace. It is often hard in the midst of our daily living to recognize that, to put in the long hours and look at our school debt. Father, if we've spent two hours over the last two weeks just unpacking what the word grace means, what a blessing is, Lord, we realize how far we fall short of truly embracing and understanding all the manifestations of Your grace. May we trust in You. May we just remember the basic and big principles of our salvation. That we're saved by grace through faith. That we're saved because You are gracious. We are here because You are gracious. We know we're not going to hell because You are gracious. Despite our fears and our stuttering, You allow us to represent eternity-changing truth because of your grace. May we be reminded all of it is grace and in the areas of our life that is grace, may you help each and every one of us evaluate how it is grace to count our blessings, to see your hand in everything. And may you grow us through that in our worship of you, in our service of you, love and service for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.